Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harlan. I'm a prof at York University, and we're continuing with the historical Jesus in context. In this episode, we turn to another role that existed in the first century in Galilee and Judea that seems to relate to how Jesus was perceived by his contemporaries. We're going to be looking at Jesus as healer and exorcist. I begin the discussion by discussing health and perceptions of health and healing that existed in antiquity. We have to remember that in the ancient world they had a different worldview than our own modern worldview and for this reason they believed and understood things in different ways and we need to consider that before we turn to the question of how can we approach Jesus and other contemporaries who were perceived as healers or exorcists. I then go on to outline several different contemporaries within Judea and Galilee that provide a context for understanding Jesus as a healer among other exorcists and healers. We then turn to the evidence regarding Jesus specifically that points to the likelihood that Jesus was perceived by his contemporaries in his own time as a healer and an exorcist. This discussion of Jesus the exorcist and healer we'll soon see leads us naturally into a discussion of the perception of Jesus among his contemporaries as a prophet. If you'd like to read further on this whole issue of health and healing and exorcism in in antiquity, I would recommend John Dominic Crossan's section on this topic within his book on the historical Jesus, which has informed my discussion here to some degree. Also, more specialized studies exist, including Graham Twelftree's Jesus the Exorcist, a contribution to the study of the historical Jesus. I hope you enjoy this episode and will come again. Let's talk about Jesus as exorcist and healer, or what you could call miracle worker. We're trying to figure out whether or not those contemporaries viewed Jesus as a healer, and therefore whether or not Jesus may have conceived of himself as a healer. And what I can say to you is this, this is the argument of the discussion here, that it seems likely that Jesus was perceived as a healer and thought of himself as having access to things that would heal, access to power of God that would heal. Let me show you how you can build up that case. First of all, I'm going to talk about other contemporary people around Jesus who were also perceived as healers or as miracle workers. That will provide a context in which you can start to say, this is a type that was in the mind of people contemporary with Jesus. That it's not just a creation of people in the late first century who were writing the Gospels. That it was also an idea that existed in contemporary with Jesus in Galilee and Judea. Once we deal with these other contemporaries that give us that context and give us the the plausibility of the potential for Jesus to be viewed as an exorcist and a healer, we'll then move on to the main piece of evidence. There's one critical piece. Evidence that Jesus was criticized not as a person who faked healing, but as a person who was able to heal, but the reason he could heal is he's demonic. Evidence that critics agreed that Jesus performed miracles, including exorcisms. The accusation is he's a demon. That's why he can cast out demons, and we're going to get to that. That is the heart of why we can argue with some degree of likelihood that Jesus was perceived as a healer, both by his followers and by his enemies. 
So about healers and exorcists here, it's worth pointing out that the historian is not trying to figure out whether or not miracles happen. Because as a historian, we have to work with naturalistic explanations of the world. We simply, as historians, do not work with miracles. We do not work with the question of whether they did or did not happen. We work with whether or not people in certain time periods believed that they happened. And that's what we're talking about here. John Dominic Crossan does a good job of explaining this point. In modern medical anthropology, they have a distinction that is made. So modern anthropologists who study notions of healing in different cultures have a distinction between disease and illness. When a medical anthropologist talks about disease, they're talking about the naturalistic aspect of things, namely that there's a person infected with something. Disease is the actual sickness in that sense, the biological problem that is there in a person. They use a distinction here between that and illness. And what they use the word illness sometimes to describe is the perception of others contemporary with that person that has the disease and what other social and cultural baggage that goes along with the perception that that person has a disease. That's illness, the social interpretation of being sick. So you can have cases, a medical anthropologist might say, where it is indeed true that someone heals someone of an illness, but not of a disease. In other words, where there's means by which certain perceived healers engage in activity that actually makes someone more accepted socially again and that gets rid of the bad notions associated with the sickness in such a way that that person's accepted again. Another thing to really underline is this, and it's behind what I just said, namely that in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, conceptions of health and healing are completely different than modern conceptions of health and healing. First of all, they don't know about the disease. They only know the illness. They only know the perceptions of someone being ill and then how you treat them and the social practices that go around that. They don't even know about the existence of little microscopic things that cause problems, do they? For the ancients, and this holds even up into the Middle Ages to some degree, illness is usually viewed as something caused by powers outside of our sphere. The point is, sickness is caused by demons or by gods. This is across the board in the great Greco-Roman world and it includes Galilee and Judea. They have their own specific ways of understanding these things that may be different than Rome or what have you, but this idea of sickness being caused by some force outside yourself is common. And so that is the premise you have to work with in trying to get into the minds of first century Galileans who are perceiving what Jesus is doing. Let's look at some of the contemporaries that are perceived as healers and exorcists. It seems that within the Judean context, there were particular traditions that formed about how to heal people and how to get rid of the demons that cause sickness. Josephus preserves the story of one Eleazar, who's an exorcist who gets rid of demons who are possessing someone and therefore making them ill. And what Josephus is talking about here is the tradition that Solomon, way back in the 900s BCE, knew how to heal people and knew the secrets and the magical cures to get rid of demons. And so in the time of Josephus in the first century, in the time of Jesus in the first century, within the Judean context, there were these legends about Solomon having the answers of how to heal people. And there were writings that were produced 
not by Solomon, but by other people, on how to heal people using Solomon's techniques. And so that's what Josephus talks about here. Let me read the passage. This is in Jewish Antiquities, 8, 42 to 49. For there was nothing in nature, Josephus says, of which Solomon was ignorant, or which he left unexamined. Rather, he investigated everything methodically and evidenced a remarkable knowledge of the peculiarities of things. God also enabled Solomon to learn the technique against demons for the benefit of healing humans. He composed incantations by which illnesses are relieved and left behind exorcistic practices with which those binding demons expel them so that they return no more. And this same form of healing remains quite strong among us until today. There's the statement the historian wants to hear. Josephus in the first century saying, this idea is widespread today. And then he's going to give an example. For I became acquainted with a certain Eleazar of my own people, a Judean, who in the presence of Vespasian, the Roman emperor, and his sons, along with their tribunes and a crowd of soldiers, we're talking in the 70s CE, if this is truly an event, delivered those possessed by demons. The method of healing is as follows. He actually describes the types of techniques that exorcists would use. Whether or not Eleazar really did all this, the point is Josephus is reflecting his knowledge of what the common perception of his time is on how you get out demons. The method of healing is as follows. Bringing up to the nose of the demonized person a ring that had under its seal a root from among those prescribed by Solomon. He, Eleazar, would then draw out the demonic presence through the nostrils as the man sniffed. Upon the man's immediate falling down, he adjured the demonic presence not to return to him again, making mention of Solomon, and likewise reciting the incantations he had composed. So there you have an example, contemporary relatively, to Jesus, and showing you that it's common perception that people do these things. Take demons out of people. And remember, the demons, in their mind, are the cause of what we would call mental illness. To them is demon possession. What we would call other physical illnesses, to them, is demon possession. And that would also hold for Jesus. We have other references to exorcists. For example, in Acts chapter 19, the point there isn't whether or not Acts is accurately reflecting an actual thing, but Acts has the story in Ephesus of Judeans who emigrated there who were exorcists, who casted out demons. The point is, Luke, the author of Acts, imagines that as a plausible story to tell, regardless of whether or not it really happened. Once again, reflecting this common perception that there are Judeans who engage in exorcisms and casting out demons in the first century. Let's look to another one that we do have evidence outside of Christian literature, namely Hanana Bendoza. Hanana Bendoza was most likely from Galilee. So not only is he roughly contemporary, he's also from Galilee. We have several different healings attributed to Hanana Bendoza. Let me illustrate some of them using the Mishnah and other Talmudic sources. So these are rabbinic sources that date from 200 CE and later. They're all talking, though, about a figure who is known to be active in Galilee in the first century CE. The point of reading this isn't that we just take it as straight history, is it? Just like with the Gospels, we can't take Talmudic sources as straight history. What well, we can take it as, as a reminiscence of a figure like Hananeh Bendoza who engaged in these sorts of healings or was perceived to be a healer. So in the Mishnah, we have this. In Barachot 5.5, we have this story. So here they're bringing up Hananeh Bendoza in the context of another issue they're dealing with about prayer. Bringing up Hananeh Bendoza, they said, 
he used to pray over the sick and say, this one will live and that one will die. They said to him, where do you get this? He told them, if my prayer flows from my mouth, I know it's accepted. If not, I know it's rejected. Here's another story about Hanana Bendoza. This one from the Babylonian Talmud. Our rabbis taught, once it happened that the son of Rabban Gamaliel fell sick. Once again, a first century character. And then Hanana Bendoza is going to be brought in to heal the sick rabbi. They sent two disciples of the sages to Hanana Bendoza to pray for mercy on him. When he saw them, he went up to the upper room and prayed for mercy on him. When he came down, he told them, go, the fever has left him. Sounds a lot like the sort of narratives attributed to Jesus. This is an interesting little thing I wanted to draw your attention to. So the, the healing takes place, the fever has gone from him, the guy says, and then the people who see him saying this and believe that it actually has already taken place, say to him, are you a prophet? He told them, I'm not a prophet or a prophet's son, but my tradition is thus. If my prayer flows from my mouth, I know it's accepted. If not, I know it's rejected. So it's back to the whole power of prayer thing, right? But what's interesting here is, first of all, you have an example of a Galilean perceived to be engaged in healing people and using prayer as a means to uh, heal people. And Jesus does is given that sort of role in the gospel stories as well. But this idea of people questioning, does this mean he's a prophet? Shows you there's a link between the different roles that are sometimes attributed to Jesus. I've already pointed out coming kingdom being linked perhaps to his exorcisms, which we're going to get into more fully with Jesus. But even his role as a prophet may be linked with supposed power to be able to heal. Here we have a case where someone thinks that Bendoza is a prophet because he heals. There is a long tradition within Israelite traditions and then within Judean literature of prophets also being healers. And it stems in large part from the stories associated with Elijah and Elisha and First and Second Kings in the Hebrew Bible. Elijah engages, he's a prophet definitely in the perception of the literature, and he's always engaging in miraculous happenings, including healing people and bringing them up from the dead, etc. And so this tradition of the type of Elijah within Israelite culture and then within Judean culture, the idea that a prophet will be able to heal people is widespread. The perception of Jesus as a prophet and Jesus as a healer could be closely linked, couldn't they? And here it's someone saying Hanana Bendoza is a prophet and him saying, no, actually I'm not. Let's move on to another type of miracle, supposed miracle that people perform. So far we've had exorcisms which are casting out of demons and that can include getting rid of an illness, whether it's a mental illness in our vocabulary or a physical illness. Both are connected to demons in the eyes of a first century Galilean. Hanana Mendoza actually illustrates this other category that we have stories about Jesus doing, namely nature miracles. We've talked about healings and exorcisms on the one hand. The other type of supposed miracle attributed to Jesus is nature miracles. Supposedly walking on the water, supposedly calming a storm, supposedly turning water into wine. These would be categorized in modern vocabulary as nature miracles. We have plenty of evidence that contemporaries of Jesus believe that people that were very special and had a connection with God could actually make things happen in nature. There's a story about Hanana Bendoza that I've just explained to you, that guy who did healings, who also managed to make it rain. There's another guy who's especially known as the expert on making it rain. If there's a drought, call up Honey the Circle Drawer or 
Onias, as it's, he's called in Josephus, and he'll be able to bring some rain for you. Again, the idea is that God is working through him, but the point is the expert has to be brought in. They don't have our modern ideas of natural laws and the inability for things to overcome natural laws. They just don't have that conception. They have a different worldview than us, don't they? Honey the circle drawer is known for drawing circles, stepping into them, and making it rain. This is from Mishnah as well. So this is from that document around 200 CE that includes traditions about all kinds of rabbis and teachers from earlier times. And Honi is one of them. Honi's from the first century BCE, most scholars think. The actual figure lived in the first century before Christ. It happened that they said to Honi the circle drawer, pray for the rains to come. He prayed, but the rains did not come. What did he do? He drew a circle, stood in it, and said before God, Lord of the world, your sons have turned their faces to me, for I am like a son of the house before you. I swear by your great name, I will not move from here until you have compassion on your sons. It's a standoff between Honi and God here. He prayed to God for rain. Rain didn't come. He draws a circle and says, I'm not moving from this circle until it rains. And continues praying to God. It began to drizzle. He said, I didn't ask for rain like this, but for rain to fill cisterns, wells, and caverns. It's a downpour threaten. He said, I didn't ask for rain like this, but for rain of goodwill, blessing, and grace. It rained as it was supposed to, until on account of the rain, Israel had to go from Jerusalem to the Temple Mount. It's very imaginative storytelling here. But the point is this character who is known for drawing circles and making it rain, praying to God. So those are the types of figures you have contemporary with Jesus that help us make sense of why it would be that contemporaries of Jesus could perceive Jesus as a healer and as a miracle worker. Or some scholars like to use the word magician. I refrain from that word because it's usually used as a derogatory term. One person's magic is another person's religion. So to call someone a magician usually has derogatory overtones. If you want to use magician in a non-derogatory way, you can say Jesus is a magician. And so were these other characters. The stories about Jesus being a healer, an exorcist, and a miracle worker are multiply attested in all of our sources. However, you as a historian might say, well, who cares whether they're multiply attested? We know miracles don't happen, therefore he wasn't a miracle worker. The problem with that logic is we've just explained, regardless of what we believe, people contemporary with Jesus sometimes did perceive people as though they were able to do miracles. If you look through the material you have, you were asked to read John's Gospel looking for the signs. So John's Gospel is actually structured around healings and miracles. They're called signs in John's Gospel. The point of that was just to get examples of what types of things are attributed to Jesus. In Mark chapters 4 to 6, he has a whole section of his narrative where he's collected together a whole lot of healings of Jesus, including casting out demons, including healing leopard people, people with skin diseases, including healing all kinds of people, right? And the narrative in Mark's Gospel and in the other Gospels portrays it as though that's the main thing Jesus goes around doing. There are tensions, though, in some of the evidence. One of the ones I want to point out to you is something very odd that I want you to know. Did anyone notice what is absent completely from the Gospel of John in terms of the types of healings Jesus does and the types of miracles he performs? Completely absent. There's not a single exorcism in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John's worldview and the way he's expressing the story of Jesus, Jesus never cast out a demon. 
When you look to the synoptic gospels, jam-packed full of demons. Question is, did John, for some reason, object to the stories about Jesus being an exorcist? Or did the synoptic gospels make it up? What I would suggest to you is it is not likely that the gospels made it up, partly because of this evidence we're going to look at on the Beelzebul controversy. Both followers and opponents of Jesus agreed that he cast out demons. It seems more likely the synoptics are on track in saying that Jesus was perceived to engage in exorcisms to cast out demons in order to heal someone. And that Gospel of John, for some unknown reason, is silent on them. So we have it multiply attested in our earliest evidence that Jesus was believed to engage in miracles. So we have the multiple attestation there, with the exception of John not giving us you know, exorcisms. I've already said things about ancient worldviews and the need to keep that in mind and the fact that there are other contemporaries doing similar things. Let's look at the key passage that allows us to argue that there's a high likelihood that Jesus was perceived to engage in exorcisms and in healings. Let's look at the Beelzebul controversy, and it's attested in multiple sources, including Q and Mark. So both Matthew and Luke have it, taking it from Q, and it's obvious by the wording they use, and Mark has it separate from them. Let's look at Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 26, partly because Luke sticks to Q a little bit more than Matthew does, it seems. Here is the passage that is the heart of a historical argument that Jesus was perceived as an exorcist and a healer. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he knew what they were thinking and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out the demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, if I cast out the demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges, is Jesus' answer. And reacting to a critique of his exorcisms by saying, well, what about your other exorcists? Look what he says next, and it's the one that links the apocalyptic future kingdom thing with this idea of Jesus uh, as a healer. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. If this goes really back to Jesus, then we have Jesus himself understanding his exorcisms as part of the final battle between God and Satan, with the casting out of demons as part of that final battle to establish the kingdom of God, that apocalyptic scenario. So there's a link between exorcisms and perhaps Jesus' own self-understanding as an exorcist and the idea of his feeling he has a role in God's final intervention to establish a kingdom. But the point I'm making here earlier was that Jesus was criticized by outsiders, people who didn't follow him, who didn't like him, not as faking his exorcisms, but as doing them because he's a demon himself. This is the most solid evidence that then builds up with the other evidence for these exorcisms that suggests that contemporaries thought Jesus was engaged in exorcisms and healings. We then have some sayings about Jesus actually sending out his own followers to do the same. The so-called mission speech 
which you'll find in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. I think we've touched on a little bit. Yes, back when I talked about John Dominic Crossan, he talked about it extensively as Jesus sending out and getting hospitality and having meals together with the peasants and healing the peasants. Remember that? The egalitarian peasant community, as Crossan argued it. So you've already come across this mission speech before, and it's where Jesus says, go out, don't carry this, that, or the other with you, and only do these things when you go from town to town and get food from the people who accept you and shake off the dust of your feet for the towns that don't accept you, that whole thing. In the midst of that, he also says, and heal the people when you're there. So it may be that Jesus believed that his abilities to heal via God were somehow able to be passed on to his followers and that there was a mission to sort of go around healing people, even among his disciples. That saying suggests that as a possible conception of how Jesus engaged in activities. Now, let me finish off with a uh, prelude to next week. I'm saying that each of these things we're dealing with, Jesus as teacher, Jesus as Galilean, Jesus as Judean, Jesus as healer, Jesus as prophet, Jesus as Messiah, and these ideas of him being perceived in those ways, these things are all connected together. And I've already shown you the connection between the notion of an apocalyptic prophet calling for the imminent kingdom of God and a healing activity of Jesus. Now I want to draw attention to connections between his role as a healer and the potential for him to be viewed as a prophet. We already had Hanana Bendoza healing and people saying, are you a prophet? I've already explained to you that there's a long tradition that saturates all kinds of Judean culture and Israelite culture. The ultimate prophet in, in the view of Israelites and Judeans is Elijah. He's the model of a prophet. And what does he do? He also heals people. So this melding of those two roles of healer and prophet is very important within Judean culture in the first century. And it may be the case that there's a close connection between those roles and Jesus. And so next week we'll get into this idea of prophet and Messiah and try and sort out that with regard to Jesus. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The opening music of this series in the podcast is Paradise Lost by Namgyal Lamo, a Tibetan artist. You can find her on the web and you can buy her CDs at Amazon.